0: Volume three, chapter ten, of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume three, Chapter ten. And now we believe in evil where once we believed in good. The world, the flesh, and the devil are easily understood. Gordon. It seems a pity that our human destinies are too often so constituted that with our own hands we may annul in one hour, one hour of weakness, the long, slow work of our strength, annul the self-conquest and the renunciation of our best years. We ought to be thankful when the gate of the irrevocable closes behind us, and the power to defeat ourselves is at last taken from us. For he who has once solemnly and with conviction renounced, and then, for no new cause, has taken to himself again that which he renounced, has broken the mainspring of his life. John went early the following morning to London, for he had business with three men, and he could not rest till he had seen them, and had shut that gate upon himself for ever. So early had he started that it was barely midday when he reached Lord Frederick's chambers. The valet told him that his lordship was still in bed, and could see no one, but John went up to his bedroom and knocked at the door. "'It is I, John Tempest,' he said, and went in. Lord Frederick was sitting up in bed, sallow and shrunk like a mummy, in a blue watered silk dressing gown. His thin hair was brushed up into a crest on the top of his head. The bed was littered with newspapers and letters. There was a tray before him, and he was in the act of chipping an egg as John came in. He raised his eyebrows and looked first with surprised displeasure, and then with attention, at his visitor. "'Good morning,' he said, and he went on tapping his egg. "Ah," he said, shaking his head. "'Hard-boiled again!' John looked at him as a plague-stricken man might look at the carcass of some obscene animal found rotting in his water-spring. Lord Frederick's varied experiences had made him familiar with the premonitory symptoms of those outbursts of anger and distress which he designated under the all-embracing term of scene. He felt idly curious to know what this man, with his fierce white face, had to say to him. "'Blige me by sitting down,' he said. "'You are in my light.' I, "'I have been reading my mother's letters to you,' said John, still standing in the middle of the room and stammering in his speech. He had not reckoned for the blind paroxysm of rage which had sprung up at the mere sight of Lord Frederick, and was spinning him like a leaf in a whirlwind. "'Indeed!' said Lord Frederick, raising his eyebrows and carefully taking the shell off his egg. "'I don't care about reading old letters myself, especially the private correspondence of other people. But tastes differ. You do, it seems. I'd imagine the particular letters you allude to had been burnt.' "'My mother intended to burn them.' "'It would certainly have been wiser to do so, but probably for that reason they remained undestroyed. From time immemorial womankind has shown a marked repugnance to the dictates of common sense.' "'I have burnt them.' No, just so,' said Lord Frederick, helping himself to salt. "'I commend your prudence. "'Had you burnt them unread, I should have been able to commend your sense of honour also.' "'What do you know about honour? said John. The two men looked hard at each other. "'That remark,' said Lord Frederick, joining the ends of his fingers and half shutting his eyes, "'is a direct insult. "'To insult a man with whom you are not in a position to quarrel is, in my opinion, John, an error of judgment. We will consider it one, and, as such, I will let it pass. The letters, I presume, contain nothing of which you were not already aware. Only the fact that I am your illegitimate son. I deplore your courses of expression. You certainly have not inherited it from me. But, my dear Galahad, it is impossible that even your youth and innocence should not have known of my tendresse for your mother. Is that the last new name for adultery? said John huskily, advancing a step nearer the bed. His face was livid, his eyes burned. He held his hands clenched lest they should rush out and wrench away all semblance of life and humanity from that figure in the watered silk dressing-gown. Lord Frederick lay back on his pillows and looked at him steadily. He was without fear, but it appeared to him that he was about to die the laws of his country, of conscience and of principle, all the protection that envelops life seemed to have receded from him, to have slipped away into the next room or downstairs with the valet. They would come back, no doubt, in time, though they might be a little late as far as he was concerned. a strong hands like mine, he said to himself, his pale, unflinching eyes fixed upon his son's while a remembrance slid through his mind of how once, years ago, he choked the life out of a mastiff which had turned on him, and how long the heavy brute had taken to die. "'Do not spill the coffee,' he said quietly, after a moment. John started violently and wheeled away from him like a man regaining consciousness on the brink of an abyss. Lord Frederick put out his lean hand and went on with his breakfast. There was a long silence. John, said Lord Frederick at last, not without a certain dignity. The world is as it is. We did not make it, and we are not responsible for it. If there is anyone who set it going, it is his own lookout. Reproach him if you can find him. All we have to do is to live in it. We can't live in it. I tell you, we can't exist in it, with any comfort, until we realise that it is rotten to the core. John was leaning against the window sill, shaking like a reed. It seemed to him that for one awful moment he had been in hell. "'I do not pretend to be better than other men,' continued Lord Frederick. "'Men and women are men and women. And if you persist in thinking them angels, especially the latter, you will pay for your mistake.' "'I am paying,' said John. Uh, "'Possibly. You seem to have sustained a shock. It is incredible to me that you did not know beforehand what the letters told you. Wedding rings don't make a greater resemblance between father and son than there is between you and me." Lord Frederick looked at the stooping figure of the young man, leaning spent and motionless against the window, his arms hanging by his sides. He held what he called his prudishness in contempt, but he respected an element in him which he would have termed grit. "'You are stronger built than I am, John,' he said with a touch of pride and wider in the chest. Come, bygones are bygones, shake hands. I can't, said John. I don't know that I could on my account, but anyhow not on hers. (laughs) Ha! and so this was the information which you rushed in without leave to spring upon me. It was, together with the fact that of course I withdraw in favour of Colonel Tempest, the heir at law, I'm going on to him from here.' Lord Frederick reared himself slowly in his bed, his brown hands clutching the bedclothes like eagle talons. You are going to own your— My shame. Yes, not yours. You need not be alarmed. Your name shall not be brought in. If I take the name of Fane, it would only be because it was my mother's. But you said you had burned the letters. I have. I don't see what difference that makes. The fact that they are burnt does not alter the fact that I am nobody. And he is the legal heir. And you mean to tell him so? I do. To commit suicide? Social suicide, yes. Fool, said Lord Frederick, in a voice which lost none of its force because it was barely above a whisper. John did not answer. Leave the room, said the outraged parent, turning his face to the wall, the bedclothes and the tray trembling exceedingly. I will have nothing more to do with you. You do not come to me when you are penniless. do you hear? I disown you. Leave me. I will never speak to you again." "'I hope to God you never will,' said John, and he took up his hat and went out. He had settled his account for the first of the three people whom he had come to London to see. From Lord Frederick's chambers he went straight to Colonel Tempest's lodgings in Brook Street. But Colonel Tempest had that morning departed with his son to Brighton, and John, momentarily thrown off his line of action by that simple occurrence, stared blankly at the landlady, and then went to his club and sat down to write to him. There was no question of waiting. Like a man walking across Niagara on a tightrope, there was no time to think, or hesitate, or look round. John kept his eyes riveted to one point, and shut his ears to the roar of the torrent below him in which a moment's giddiness would engulf him. It was afternoon by this time. As he sat writing at a table in one of the bay windows, a familiar voice spoke to him. It was Lord Hemsworth. They had not met since the night of the ice carnival. Lord Hemsworth's face had quite lost its boyish expression. "'I hope you are better tempest,' he said, with obvious constraint, looking narrowly at him. Could Di's accepted lover wear so grey and stern a look as this? John replied that he was well, and then, with sudden recollection of Mitty's account of Lord Hemsworth's conduct during that memorable night, began to thank him, and stopped short. The room was empty. "'It was on her account,' said Lord Hemsworth. John did not answer. It was that conviction which had pulled him up. Lord Hemsworth waited some time for John to speak, and then he said, know about me, Tempest, and why I was on the ice that night. Well, I have kept out of the way for three months under the belief that I should hear any day that—I am not such a fool as to pit myself against you. I, I don't want to be a nuisance, sir, but it's three For months—God's sake, tell me, are you on or are you not?' "'I am not,' said John. "'Then I will try my luck,' said the other. He went out, and John knew that he had gone to try it there and then. sat motionless with his hand across his mouth and his unfinished letter before him, until the servant came to close the shutters. End of Volume 3 Chapter 10